when our kids were younger, uh, we started a tradition where every Christmas we would take our kids to the dollar store and they would get to pick out gifts for Echo and I and each other. Now, I don't know if there, is there a dollar store in the area? I, I'm not sure if there, okay, so you guys are familiar with the concept. Everything there is a dollar, hence the name. Or dollar twenty-five. okay, okay, inflation, blah, 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 just go with me on the concept. Back, this is how long ago it was, dollar, still, dollar store still sold stuff for a dollar. So uh, we would go every year before Christmas and they would pick out gifts. And uh, we had three kids and we didn't want anyone to see what they were getting. And so Echo and I actually worked out a pretty elaborate system of how to do this shopping. It would involve us having different kids at different part of the store and then trading. And then we'd cover stuff in the cart with a coat so we wouldn't see. And we'd pay separately. And we really went to lengths to uh, preserve the mystery. But we managed it. And this actually was a fun family tradition we did for several years. Now, why did we do this? Uh, believe me, it was not because of the extraordinary gifts we got from the dollar store. Uh, you know, we got a lot of candy, depending what was uh, in stock that year. Uh, we amassed quite a collection of dollar store mugs over the years. So obviously it wasn't because of the gift itself. It's because we wanted to teach our kids how to give gifts. This is the reason why when birthdays or Father's or Mother's Day would roll around, we would take the kids to a store and let them pick out a gift. We might even give them ideas on what a good gift would be. And we'd pay for that gift. Uh, we would give them what was needed so they could give gifts, whether that was providing transportation or advice or the actual money to buy it. This is something that my parents did with me when I was a kid, although they stopped as I got older, just as we stopped with our kids as they got older, because as we get older, we get more independent and we have more resources that we manage, and we should be able to give gifts on our own. It's kind of when you know the plan has worked is when you don't have to take your kids to the store to get the gifts. You don't have to give them ideas. You know, it would be kind of strange at this point in my life if my dad called me up and said, Tim, your brother's birthday's coming up. Here's $10. Make sure you get him something. Now get in the car. We're going to the dollar store. But when our kids are young, it really is appropriate that we would give them what they need to give gifts. There is a parallel here to our life with God. There is a purpose that God has for each of us that includes us giving gifts on his behalf to other people. And the gifts I'm thinking of are not, you know, presents with a bow on top or a card with a check in it. I'm thinking of the gifts of grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and hospitality and service. These are gifts that God wants us to give to others, but we can only give what we have. And in the kingdom of God, everything we have is itself a gift from God to us. This is the whole idea behind salvation being an act of grace, not of works. We can't earn God's love or his salvation or his grace or mercy or forgiveness. That's why Ephesians 2.8 says that that is a gift of God to us. So God gives us these gifts and then he calls us to give them to others. He gives to us what he wants us to give to others. Actually, what he wants to give through us to others. And we, this is a, we never grow out of needing God to provide what he wants us to give to others. But God gives to us what he wants to give through us. We're going to see a really powerful example of this as we look at God's word today. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Exodus chapter 3. 
We're continuing on in this series called People of the Presence. We're looking at highlights from the book of Exodus, and we're seeing how God's presence with his people defined who they are. His presence with them defined who they are. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Exodus 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 17. To get us started, I'm just going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 3. So would you stand with me and follow along as I read these verses for us. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange thing, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Lord, we thank you so much again this week for your word and for the revelation you want to bring by your spirit through your word to us today. So we say yes to that work you want to do in this time. We ask God that you would open the eyes of our heart so that we can see you more clearly today and that we would see who we are more clearly in light of who you are. We pray that you would open our ears and our minds so that we can hear and understand all that you want to say to us today. And we speak against any confusion or distraction that would get in the way of that. And just as you have been moving in the service, Holy Spirit, continue to move on our hearts Quicken us to make the response to you that you want us to make today, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So when this story starts, Moses is having a normal day. Uh, We saw last week in verses we read that Moses lived for the first 40 years of his life as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt. But then he killed the man and had to flee to Midian, where he became part of the household of a man who, in the verses we looked at last week, was called Ruel. Here he's called Jethro. It's the same guy. Jethro may be more of a title, but Moses became a part of his household, married his daughter Zipporah. They had a son. We actually see uh, in a couple chapters that they actually have two sons together. And Moses is employed as a shepherd for his father-in-law tending his flock. And that's what Moses is doing on this day. It's a usual day, but then something very unusual happens. Because Moses sees a bush that is burning but is not burned up. And he says, I've got to go see what this is. So he goes to the bush and then 
It says he saw an angel of the Lord within the flames and God spoke to him. Now, the angel of the Lord, that's a phrase that we see several times in the Old Testament. And what that's referring to is God making himself known to people in a way that they can handle without being overwhelmed by his glory. Uh, If you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you remember they open the ark and their faces melt, the angel of the Lord is God talking to people in a way that that doesn't happen. He's accommodating himself, uh, putting himself in a way that we could see that people could interact with and not be undone. So it is God who's speaking to Moses from this bush, and he says to him, I've seen the suffering of my people. Their cry has reached me. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. I'm going to bring them into this land that I promised their forefathers to give them, this land of abundance, this land flowing with milk and honey. And, uh, and in verse 8, he says, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to deliver them. And Moses, you're the guy who's going to do it. And when Moses hears this call, he says, yes, Lord, this is what I've been waiting for my entire life. I am prepared for this. I'm raring to go. Thank you that I get to deliver your people. Uh, No, that is not the response Moses made, was it? He kind of says the opposite. Who am I to do this? You've got the wrong guy, Lord. Uh, You know, another 40 years had passed that Moses had been in Midian He's, 80, he's an 80-year-old shepherd in the middle of nowhere. says, who am I? You've got the wrong guy, Lord. Who am I? And it's interesting that God's response to Moses is not to build him up and say, no, man, you're, you're Moses. I've been preparing you your whole life for this. You, you, you got this, kid. No, that's not what the Lord says. The Lord does also not diminish the scope of what's before him. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry if I freaked you out. It's not really that big a deal. It's actually going to be pretty easy. No, the answer to the challenge Moses feels was not in Moses being super competent. It was not in the task being manageable. It was in God being able to do what he says he does. The Lord says, I will be with you. That's how you're qualified to do this. That's how you're able to do it because I will be with you. It was God's presence with Moses that was going to make this possible. Now, I think I'm on pretty safe ground to say that none of us have ever experienced the Lord speaking to us from a burning bush in the way that this happened to Moses. But all of us have a commission from God to join him in the work he is still about to bring deliverance, to bring rescue, to bring salvation to the people around us. You probably don't know anyone who is enslaved in the same way that the Israelites were enslaved by Pharaoh, but you do know people who are slaves to sin. You know people who are bound up by wounds that have been done to them, by lies that they've believed, by unforgiveness and bitterness, maybe even bound up by demonic spirits. You know people who need healing in their bodies and their minds and their souls, and God's call to us is to be agents of his salvation, deliverance, freedom, healing to those people. And when we see the scope of that, our response is often like Moses to say, who am I, who are we to be able to do this? We're not qualified. We need more of that in our lives. How are we supposed to give that to others? But the key for us is the same as it was for Moses, God is with us. God's word to Moses here 
is the same as Jesus' last words to his disciples at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, when he says, I will be with you always. That's how we can carry out the commission that we've been given by God, to join him in this work of deliverance and salvation. So God was going to go with Moses. But while Moses was in God's presence on the mountain, God gave him what he needed to do what he was being called to do. In God's presence, Moses was given what he was going to give to others. And the same is true for us. In God's presence, he gives to us what he wants to give through us as he goes with us. So in God's presence, in those times that we're away and apart with him, connected with him, in God's presence, he gives to us what he wants to give through us as he goes with us. The key here is God's presence. We're going to see three examples of this as we look at God's interaction with Moses here in Exodus 3 and 4. The first thing we see that God gives to Moses in his presence is revelation of his character. Uh, There's revelation of God's character. And uh, the first thing about God that Moses comes to understand is that God is holy. Uh, As Moses starts to approach this bush, God says to him, stop, don't come any closer. The ground you're standing on, it's this place, it's holy ground. Now, this was not holy ground because it was already the place of some sanctuary or temple or, you know, it wasn't because it was something mystical about the actual dirt Moses was standing on. This place was holy because God's presence was there. It's God's presence that makes things holy, that makes people holy. God is holy, and this holiness of God demands a response. God says, take off your sandals, and then it, which Moses does, and it also says Moses hid his face from God, just you know, aware that the holiness of God was so great he couldn't look directly at him. And so Moses understands that God is holy. Moses also understands in this encounter that God is loving. Because God says, I am concerned about my people. I, I, I care about their suffering and their oppression. And the love that God had for his people was not just a matter of emotion, but translated into action. God's love did not mean that he was just sitting up in heaven going, man, I'm really bummed for you guys. This is really hard. I have a lot of empathy for you in your suffering. I mean, it was that, but it was also God saying, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to deliver you and bring you out of slavery and bring you into the land I promised your, your forefathers to give you. So Moses understands that God is holy, that he's loving, but there's more for Moses to understand here as well. Let's keep reading in chapter 3. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have uh, promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, 
Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Side note, that's just a way of talking about a journey of undetermined length. And notice it says they're going to go. It doesn't say they're going to come back. Uh, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians." So Moses responds to the Lord's uh, call here by saying, wait a minute, what if I go to to my people and I say that I've met with you and then they want to know more? Moses says, what if they ask me, what is your name? And here, as in many other places in scripture, name is not simply referring to what you call someone, it's referring to their character and their nature and their reputation. Really, Moses is saying, if they ask me what you're like, what do I tell them? Kind of implicit here is Moses saying, I don't know enough about you to be able to tell them if they ask, so give me something here. If they ask what you're like, what do I say? And the Lord said, God says to him, he says, I am the Lord, I am who I am. He says, tell them I am has sent you. He says, tell them the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. Now, the actual name of God that he mentions here is what's rendered as Lord there in all capital letters. This is uh, the, the Hebrew word. It's four consonants. In Hebrew, it's Yod, He, Vav, He, equivalent, equivalent to English Y-H-W-H. And this was the personal name of God. This was not a title. This was his name. And it's very possible that the Israelites already knew that this was his name because we see this being used earlier in Exodus and even in Genesis. So it wasn't necessarily that this was a new name God was revealing, but it was what he was emphasizing in this context. Uh, This is the name of God that the Jewish people came to believe was so holy that they would not pronounce it out loud. And so when they would read scripture, they would substitute the word Lord or Adonai for this. And so whenever they came to YHWH, they would say Adonai. And over time, they actually put the vowel markings for Adonai under these letters, Y-H-W-H, to remind them, oh right, we say Adonai here. Now, when the Bible was being translated into Latin in the Middle Ages, those scholars didn't understand that, and so they tried to put some of the vowels from Adonai with these consonants, and that's how we came up with the word Jehovah for God, which is almost certainly not how it was pronounced. Uh, People who know a lot more about Hebrew than I do think it probably was pronounced Yahweh. So we see that in songs we sing. Some translations will use that. Most translations put it in Lord in capital letters, kind of out of respect for this tradition of not saying it out loud. Um, But but that's, that's what it is. So when you see Lord in capital letters, you know it's referring to this holy name of God, this personal name of God, probably pronounced Yahweh. Now, you might be saying, Tim, all that is mildly interesting. But what does it have to do with Moses' question of what God is like? Well, that name for God, Y-H-W-H, is related to the Hebrew verb to be. 
And God is really emphasizing that as he says, tell them, I am sent you. And he answers Moses' question by saying, I am who I am. And some scholars have thought, oh, when God said, I am who I am, he's telling Moses, that's ah, a stupid question, I'm not going to answer it. Kind of like when we say, well, it is what it is, when we don't want to talk about something. I am who I am, don't worry about it. But that doesn't really fit the context, because God has a lot to say to Moses about who he is. So that doesn't fit. Some have said, I am who I am is referring to God's eternal self-sufficient nature, that he exists not contingent on any other being or force in the universe. That is true of God, but that also doesn't really fit the context here. Does this really work that Moses goes to the Israelites, people he hasn't seen in 40 plus years, and he says, God met with me. And they say, well, what's he like? He says, let me give you a philosophical treatise on the ontological nature of God. <laughs> it doesn't probably fit. But so what is God saying here? Well, he says, I am who I am. And that can also be translated, I will be who I will be. I am who I will be, or I will be who I am. What this is referring to is God's constancy and faithfulness. God is saying, I am the God of I am, not I was. I'm the God who does, not the God who did. And you notice that he says, I'm going to fulfill the promise I made to your forefathers. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What, what God wanted Moses and the Israelites to understand is that the same God who made those promises to your forefathers, I'm that same God. And the one who worked powerfully then is going to work powerfully now. This is emphasizing God's faithfulness. And this really made sense that this would be the message that Moses would bring to his people when they say, what is God like? That he would be able to say, he is Yahweh, the I am, the constant one, the God who is, not just the God who was, that he's the same powerful God now as he was then, and so he is going to fulfill his promise and bring us out of Egypt. That was an encouraging thing for the people to know, and that's what they needed to know about God as they headed into this time when they were going to have to trust him to deliver them from Egypt. So, so God is revealing his character to Moses here, that he's holy, that he's loving, that he's faithful. And God is not only revealing this to Moses, but he wants him to reveal this on his behalf to the people of Israel. God's giving this to Moses so that he can give it to the Israelites, and not just the Israelites. If we were to skip ahead to chapter 7, verse 5, God says he's going to work and do all that he's going to do uh, in, in Egypt so that the Egyptians will know, so that they will know that I am the Lord, so that they will know that I am Yahweh, so that they will know that I am the God who is, not who was, who is still powerful, the God who fulfills my promises. God doesn't just want his people to know, he wants his enemies to know who he is. Moses didn't know about God, so God told him, revealed it to him, so that he could tell it to the people, so that they would know who God is. And God will do the same for us. As we are in his presence, he reveals his character to us, so that we can reveal his character to others. Sometimes this, this, uh, this takes the form of us actually telling people what God is like. You know, when someone asks us, what is God like? We want to have an answer that is not, well, I've heard he's like this, I've read he's like this. Others have said he's like this. We want to be able to say, I know who he is. As a mentor of mine used to say, we know in our knowers that this is who God is. I know that he is holy because I've been humbled by his holiness. I know that he is loving because I've been overwhelmed with his love. I know that he is faithful because I've been astounded by his faithfulness. 
I have experienced this. He's revealed it to me. So I can tell you with complete authenticity and sincerity, this is who God is. This is what he is like. Sometimes these revelations of God's character, sometimes they're like a wave that hits us. Other times it's like a rising tide in our lives that we grow more, to know more over time. In my life, it's been a bit of both. But as we spend time in God's presence, he reveals his character so that we can say he's holy, he's loving, he's faithful. But it's not something we're just meant to say. It's something we're meant to live as well. That really, people are meant to know what the character of God is like as they look at our character. That that they would be able to say, ah, I believe that God is holy because I see holiness in you. I believe that God is loving because I see how you love. I believe that God is faithful because I've seen you be faithful over the long haul. Now when I hear that, I say, well, who am I? (laughs) I am woefully unqualified for that. Except that as we're in God's presence, he transforms us to look more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we behold his glory, we are transformed into his image. We become more like God as we are in his presence. He reveals his character to us so that his character can be revealed through us to others so that people can know who God is as they look at us and as, as we speak. And this really matters if people are going to experience deliverance, salvation, freedom in their life. They've got to know who God is. They've got to understand that he's holy and his holiness demands a response. They've got to know that he's loving in a way that leads him to act. They've got to understand his faithfulness and his consistency and that he fulfills promises. And so God reveals that to us so we can reveal it to them. In his presence, God gives us what he wants to give through us to others. And that includes revelation of his character. It also includes demonstrations of his power. Moses experiences the power of God in some profound ways in this encounter. And the first one, and just not to miss this, is the burning bush itself. This is not not normal. This is not explainable by natural means. This is something supernatural that God is doing. It is a sign. It's a wonder. It's the power of God displayed in this way that is going to get Moses' attention and set up this whole conversation. But that's not the only way that Moses experiences God's power. Let's keep reading on in chapter 4. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe those two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So it's interesting here. What is the question that Moses asks? He says, what if they do not believe me? Moses is not asking for miracles 
or a demonstration of God's power or a sign. He's just asking the question, what if they do not believe? And it was kind of audacious that he would ask this because in the verses we just read at the end of chapter 3, God told him, they will believe you. And now Moses is saying, but they're not going to believe me. So if they don't believe me, what do I do? God would have been well within his rights to say, Moses, I just told you they're going to believe you. Don't worry about it. But instead, he responds by giving these signs. God's answer to the problem of belief is to give signs, demonstrations of his power. God gives signs to help people believe, and God likes to give signs to help people believe. These signs that God gives were also tailored specifically for the situation the Israelites were in. Uh, The whole deal with the snake. The snake was a symbol of Pharaoh's power. You may have seen pictures of pharaohs in their regalia and holding their their headdress in place is a metal clasp in the form of a hooded serpent, a hooded cobra. This symbolized Pharaoh's power of life and death over his people. So God is saying, oh yeah, snakes, no big deal. Just pick it up, it turns into a staff. I have power over that and what it represents. I am more powerful than Pharaoh. I have the power of life and death. Then the the sign of Moses' hand turning leprous, uh, that probably represented the state the Israelites were in. They were not well, they were suffering, and they needed restoration. That's the key word there, God restored his hand. So these people needed to know that God could restore them, that God could, um, could rescue them and deliver them and restore them. And then the, the water was specifically water from the Nile. That's why that sign couldn't be previewed on the mountain is because they were very far from the Nile. The Nile was the source of life for the Egyptian people. And they saw it that way. It was a symbol of life. And really the whole might of the Egyptian nation and empire was based on the agriculture that the Nile River made possible. And so this, what is a symbol of life to the Egyptian people is going to be turned into a symbol of death. Again, God is saying, I'm the one who has the power, not snakes, not the Nile, not Pharaoh, not anything that represents Egypt. I, God is saying, I'm the powerful one. And how good would it be for the Israelites to know that as they get ready to rely on God's power to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh and this powerful empire of Egypt? The signs God gave were not merely to validate the messenger, but to actually validate the message as well. That not only has Moses met with God, but what he's saying is accurate and true. And God is, uh, is giving these signs to Moses, does them there in his presence on the mountain, so that Moses can do them before the Israelites, but also before Pharaoh. If, as we read ahead in the story, we see that Moses does these signs in Pharaoh's presence. So again, God wants not just his people, but his enemies to know he's powerful, so that they will believe in the message that he's sending through Moses. Now, should we expect that God would still demonstrate his power and give signs to us and through us today? Well, this is a pretty consistent way God works in scripture. We don't just see it here in Exodus. We see it all through the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says his message is the kingdom of God has come. The miracles he did, the healings, the exorcisms uh, validated that message. We see that continued in, in Acts as well. It's a consistent theme in scripture that miracles validate the message, that works authenticate the words that God gives to someone to speak. They go together. And if God is the same now as he was then, if he's the same through all generations, 
if, as Hebrews says, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever, then why wouldn't we believe that God would still demonstrate his power to help people believe in him? Sometimes we can get in our minds that, well, if someone needs a sign to believe, it means that they're, they're just kind of a loser. They're really unspiritual. They're, maybe they're not very intelligent. Maybe they are, they're inferior in some way. You just don't get that picture as you look in Scripture. God gives signs to lots of different people and never with a sense of being disparaging toward them. Um, God does not get mad at Moses here for asking what if they don't believe. He says, well, here, here's some signs to help people believe. So God, we can expect that as we're in God's presence, God will demonstrate his power in our lives. He will work powerfully in us. And then he'll work powerfully through us as he goes with us. Sometimes that can be very dramatic. It can be a healing that we experience. It can be a very specific prophetic word God speaks to us. It could be some physical sense of his power, his presence with us. And sometimes it's not that dramatic. It's just God working powerfully in our lives in a way that's powerful to us, even if it's not obvious on the outside or others wouldn't necessarily see it. And we can expect that God will work through that uh, through us in those ways in other people's lives. Sometimes dramatically, sometimes with an instantaneous healing or a, a very specific word of knowledge or some other just wonder that he performs. Yes, and sometimes he'll work in ways that are powerful to that person that might not even be evident or dramatic or obvious to, to anyone else. And the signs that God gives are going to be specific to our context and what we need, just as they were to what the Israelites needed. We're not likely to see staffs turning into serpents or water turned into blood because that's not the situation we're in. But God will work in a way that's significant communicates to us. I remember uh, several years ago, I was uh, speaking at a Christmas Eve service, and I was speaking about the Magi, you know, in Matthew 2, who see a sign, a star, that leads them to Jesus. And I was making this point about how God, God gives signs. And I was encouraging people that if you are wondering about believing in God, ask him for a sign and see what happens. And there was a couple there who the wife had worked with Echo at, at school. And these were not churchy people. I don't know that they'd ever been to our church before. I don't know that they had much of an active faith. But they kind of took me up on what they said. And they said, okay, God, if you're real, if you want us to know you, then give us a sign. And within two months, uh, the wife was pregnant. And they, she said to Echo, that was God's sign to us, that he was real. Now, that's something that, to me, I do, oh, well, you got pregnant. But to them, it was God working powerfully in a way that, that demonstrated, I'm real, I care about you, I want you to know me. So the signs will be targeted to our situation. They are, signs are to help us believe. And, and these, this is important, especially in our day and age. You know, I think that um, some of us might think, and the older you are, the more you might tend to think this way, is that if we can prove something is true, then people should believe it, and then we can expect that we'll experience something after we believe. That makes a certain amount of sense. But what's more the train of thought for many people, especially uh, with younger generations, is actually that when I experience something, that will help me believe it, and then I'll know it's true. So which comes first, belief or experience? Either one can, but I love that God is so gracious is that he will often give the experience to lead to belief and doesn't always wait for us to believe before we have some kind of experience, a demonstration of his power. 
So this kind of an apologetic, an apologetic that is not just arguments, but that is the power of God displayed, is going to be increasingly important to reach people in our world today, especially younger generations, who think differently about truth and belief. Truth still matters, belief still matters, but a demonstration of God's power is going to be an increasingly important part of that process of them coming to believe. So isn't it good that God gives signs to help people believe? So we experience this in his presence so that as he goes with us, uh, we, we can see that happen for others as well. Revelation of his character, demonstrations of his power, and third, communication of his message. In, in this encounter God has with Moses, that Moses has with God, uh, Moses hears God speak to him. I think it's in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3. God says to him, I've seen their suffering of my people, their cries come up before me. I'm bringing them into this land of milk and honey, occupied by all these different peoples. God says that to Moses. And then, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, when God says, this is what I want you to tell the Israelites, it's the same thing that God just said to Moses. It's milk and honey, occupied by all these people, but I'm fulfilling the promise, bringing them out of Egypt. You see, God said, God spoke to Moses, and then when he said, give this message to them, it was what he'd already spoke, spoken to Moses. God spoke to him what he wanted to speak through him. And God had a message not just for the Israelites, but also for Pharaoh. He says, you and the elders go to Pharaoh and tell him this. And so God is being very clear and specific to Moses. This is the message I want you to give. I'm giving it to you and I'm telling you to give it to them. But Moses was still very unsure about speaking on God's behalf. Uh, going on in chapter 4, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. Uh, he will speak to the people for you and it will be as if uh, he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. So Moses says, I just, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow with speech and tongue. We don't know if Moses meant he had a speech impediment or just that he wasn't quick on his feet. He wouldn't know what to say. But the Lord's answer to him is, I'll help you speak. Actually, literally in Hebrew, that's, I will be with your mouth. So God is not just saying, I will be with you. I'll actually be with your mouth. And not only am I telling you here on the mountain what to say, but in the moment, I will teach you what to speak. I will be with you. And Moses says, can you please just send someone else? And this is where God gets angry with him. God has not been angry at any of Moses' objections or questions before, but when Moses more or less refuses to go, God, then God's angry. And he says, okay, this is still an issue. Your brother Aaron can speak well. Um, he'll, he, he, can, he can communicate with you. But even then, God says, and again, this is the literal in the Hebrew, he says, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what to do. See, it's God's presence is still the key. That he was giving them the message on the mountain, but then as he went with them, he was going to help them know 
what to speak as well. And God is saying, you don't have to do this by yourself. God says, Moses, it's you and the elders who are going to go to Pharaoh. And then he says, Aaron is already on his way. God had already provided Aaron to be a partner with Moses before Moses threw his fit. Now, I don't know if Aaron's role would have been the same without Moses' complaints, but God knew that Moses uh, needed a companion. He didn't intend for Moses to do this by himself. He already had Aaron on the way. So for us, friends, God, God wants to speak a message through us, and that can be intimidating to us. It can, this is hard for some of us, but it's necessary. Some of us really like to hang on to that quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That should actually be preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Because yes, we want people to see the character of God in us and how we live. Yes, we want there to be demonstrations of God's powers and signs that will help people believe. But at some point, we got to use our words and say, this is how you can respond to God. This is how you can experience salvation. This is what healing and freedom would look like for you. We've got to use our words. Paul in Romans 10, 13, and 14 said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they, how can they call on the one in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them, unless someone proclaims, tells them about how to call on the name of the Lord? He goes on to say, and how can they preach unless they are sent? But this is, so this is necessary. Now God will give us what, what to say as we're in his presence. He'll speak to us. And what he speaks to us, he'll speak through us. Sometimes, again, this is just the general sense of learning the voice of the Lord, and we just have a sense of what he's saying, and so that's naturally what we communicate. Other times it might be God speaking very specifically, tell this person this thing. Maybe we're praying for someone, and God gives us a sense of, we get a sense from God of say this to them. But when we're in God's presence, he will give his message to us that he wants to speak through us to others. So we can do that and we don't have to do it alone. We're meant to partner with one another in this. Jesus and his disciples out two by two. We partner with one another and as a church, this is what we want to be about. We together want to communicate the message of God to a world that needs to hear it so they know how to respond. So that they can experience deliverance, salvation, freedom, healing, restoration, rescue. So we, sit, we give this message and we give it together really is an amazing commission that God has given to us to join him in his work of deliverance and rescue. And our first response may be, who am I? We're not qualified. But we can do this because the Lord is with us. You may have heard it said, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And what qualifies us to do this work is the presence of God with us. In God's presence, he gives to us what he wants to give through us as he goes with us. That includes revelation of his character, that he's holy and loving and faithful. That includes demonstrations of his power, signs to help people believe. That includes a message that he has for us to give to others. So part of our response today is to say a fresh, fresh yes to this call and to not be like Moses and say, please send someone else, but rather to say, here I am, Lord, I'm willing. I don't feel qualified, but because you're with me, yes, I'll do it. Amen. Then part of our response as well is to get good at being in God's presence. All of this hinges on God's presence. This means that, we, that, that, that we're purposeful about spending time with him. 
And we come with expectation to the places where God tends to show up, like his word. We come to scripture with expectation that we're going to encounter God in his word. In his word, we're going to understand who he is. And we're going to see his power. And we're going to hear his words. And we come to times of prayer with the same expectation that we are going to encounter God in prayer. Not just the part of prayer where we speak to God, but also the part where we listen to him to speak to us. That in those times, we're going we're gonna to see who he is more clearly. We're, we're going to see his power at work. We're going to hear him speaking to us and giving us a message he wants us to give to others. And we're going to come with that same expectation to gatherings like this, to community with other believers. When we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we come to connection groups, and we come to Bible studies, and we come to Sunday mornings with an expectation that we are going to encounter the presence of God, that as we gather together, we are going to, he is going to reveal his character to us in fresh and new ways, that he is going to demonstrate his power in our midst, that he's going to communicate his message to us so that we can give it to others. So we come with expectation. We expect to encounter God in his word, in prayer, in community, because we know that it's from God's presence that we get what he wants us to give as he goes with us. Do you bow your heads with me? I'll invite the worship team to come up. We're going to worship together in a moment, but I, you know, I don't want to just talk about the presence of God. I really want us to experience that and to respond to the Lord. So I'm just going to give you a quiet moment and uh, just invite you to be in God's presence, to open your heart and your mind to the Holy Spirit, to listen and just say, Lord, I'm present with you, and just, uh, just respond to whatever he says or does in you in this moment. So come, Lord, have your way. We experience God's presence in different ways. Sometimes it's just a sense of his nearness, him being with us. Maybe sometimes it might feel like he's just sitting down next to us. Sometimes God might give us an image or a picture in our mind, something he wants us to know. And sometimes we just hear a whisper thought in our minds. It's his voice communicating to us. Very often what we hear God say is that he loves us. I just want to encourage you, if that's what you heard in this last moment as you were quiet, don't dismiss that as your own thought or, oh yeah, I know God loves me. That's very often the starting point of God's revelation to us is to assure us of his love. Lord, we as a church want to grow in our ability to be in your presence and to respond to you. So, Lord, we are, are declaring a fresh intentionality to notice you, to not pass by any burning bushes or other signs of your presence, but to turn aside any time we sense you're at work, Lord, and that's in our individual lives, but also as we're together corporately, Lord, we really want to be people of your presence. So, Lord, show us who you are and what you're doing. We pray that you'd reveal your character, that you'd demonstrate your power, that you'd speak, Lord. Help us to not miss that. Help us to get better at hosting your presence and responding to you. Uh, we really, Lord, want to join you in the work you're about to bring deliverance and salvation and rescue and freedom and healing to those who still need it. Do it more in us, Lord, but do it through us as well, we pray. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. So, Lord, that's our response to you. 
say yes to your invitation. We hear you in the words of that song inviting us to a deeper place of intimacy and connection with you. And we say yes. We hear you inviting us to a life of mission and purpose. And we say yes. We say that together as a church family. Yes, Lord. We say yes to your call. Amen. Amen. Uh, Folks, it's been great to worship with you. Don't forget to connect with the Kims after the service. Uh, Connect with one another as well. But I want to bless you as we go from this time. So Chapel family, I bless you with receptivity to the gifts of God in your life. And I speak against and tear down any walls that would get in the way, any barriers, blocks that it would get in the way of you receiving what God has for you. I remove and say no to numbness that can settle in to our hearts and instead give you a sensitive, open heart to the Holy Spirit of God. I bless you with receptivity to the gifts of God so that you can give away freely what you have freely received. So Chapel family, as we go from this time, we are blessed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Bless you.